Uh, it's a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, as Chris said, it is really hot. And the reason why it's hot is because, for those of you who are visitors, the reason why it's hot is because it is Memphis and it is the summer. And that's how we do it around here, really hot. And when I was growing up here in Memphis, every once in a while during one of these really hot summers, uh, we would go ahead and pack up the minivan and head down to the beach. Because that's what summers are for, is the beach, right? And I remember one summer in particular where we went down to the beach and it was hot and we got on all our sunscreen and all that stuff. And my parents, I don't remember how old I was, but they got me one of those floats and it was a big rainbow colored tiger. And I was really jazzed about that big rainbow colored tiger. And you know, you blow it up and then you wade out into the ocean. And I think the idea was, you know, you'd sit on that thing and kind of gently bob with those Gulf of Mexico waves or whatever and it'd be real relaxing and you kind of unwind. But for whatever reason, this summer I decided, maybe I saw surfing videos or something, but every morning I would take out that tiger and I'd put it right where the waves crash onto the sand and I would wait for a wave to go and then I'd you know, straddle up on that tiger and I'd just wait. And here would come the wave, and it would just knock me over. And I'd get caught in this wave, and I'd be flipping around, and, you know, I'd be smashed by this wave, and the tiger would go who knows where. And it was just crazy. It was just an exhilarating feeling of being caught up in this wave. And I remember, you know, sort of after about an hour of this, I'd drag myself out of the water, and I'd be bleeding from the knees, and I'd be, like, you know, throwing up salt water. And, like, I was having the time of my life. And I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but for me there was something exhilarating and exciting, intoxicating even, about being caught up in something so big and so vast. And the passage that we just read, just like the song we sang earlier, tells us that God's grace is like an ocean that captures us and sucks us in and spins us around and spits us back out. And it's terrifying and it's exhilarating. So the passage that we just read comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And the section that we're reading is a little bit of that letter that turns into a fundraising letter. It's pretty different. I've written fundraising letters. I've received fundraising letters. This one is a little bit different than the ones you've normally got. It starts out by talking about these really, really poor people who gave and begged to give uh, to a fundraising opportunity that Paul was organizing for people in Jerusalem who were in famine. So Paul is saying, hey, you Corinthians, let me tell you about this other church who's so poor, but they gave a whole bunch of money for these poor people in Jerusalem. Hint, hint. Most uh, fundraising letters have a hint, hint. Paul's is pretty strong. <laughs> you guys aren't quite as poor as them, and they gave a lot. What are you going to do? So then, after explaining that, Paul moves into uh, explaining to the Corinthians how it's actually Jesus and his life that creates the pattern for generosity. And then finally he explains to the Corinthians what the result of that generosity is going to be. And this morning I want us to look at three things that we can see from this passage. First of all, Jesus, God himself, became poor so that you and I might receive his rich grace of salvation. Second, we're going to see that when we receive the grace of salvation, the inevitable result is that we experience the grace of generosity for God's people. And the third thing we're going to see is that when we live in the grace of generosity, God uses that generosity to create a community of grace and a community of giving based on Him. So we're going to see those three things this morning. 
Uh, let me just pray for us really quickly as we begin. Lord, you have given us all that we need to know right here in your word. Work in our hearts, Jesus, that we might know you who for our sakes became poor so that we might live in the riches of your grace. Amen. First thing we see in this passage is that Jesus became poor to give his people the grace of salvation. If you've got your Bibles, the heart of this text, and one of the heart, maybe the heart of this letter, is right there in chapter 8, verse 9. It's very simple. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the good news of what Jesus has done for you and me in one powerful sentence. Let's look at it bit by bit. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, how was Jesus rich? The entire New Testament tells us that this man, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, was not just any man, but God himself. Paul reminds the Corinthians that Jesus, the man, was God, and that all the riches that belong to God, which is all of them, belong to Jesus. That he is the one who was there before there was anything. That by his hands, heaven and earth were created. That as God, he was over all and above all and in all and in, and in control of everything. That God was this Jesus and he was very rich. But, Paul says, he became poor for our sakes. What does he mean by poor? We sang about it over and over again in these songs, which is just one of the cool things that the Holy Spirit does because I didn't know what we were singing until we showed up. We sang about it over and over again. This God, that God, who created everything became man. He who knew all power became a powerless child. The one who uh, created heaven and earth was wrapped up in diapers with all that that entails. And not only was he born, but he was born poor to a working class family. He wasn't born in a kingdom or in a palace. He didn't become king. He was born poor. He worked hard for a living. That God became man in a dusty village in the Middle East, worked his tail off all his life, and even though he never did anything wrong, the Bible teaches that he died naked and ashamed and rejected and beat up on the most sophisticated torture deal that human history had come up with at that point. That's what it means that Jesus became poor. That God in heaven, who had infinite power and glory, became the wretched, bleeding, dying man on the cross. It is beyond understanding. As we sing a lot of Sundays, the hands that form nations stretched out on a tree, taking the nails for us. That's what Paul means when he says in one quick word, Christ who is rich became poor. Why? For your sake, so that we who were poor, how are we poor? We know how we're poor. That's easy, right? Enslaved by sin, stuck in endless addiction and pain, actually poor <laughs> for some of us, right? We suffer. Our bodies are poor. They're weakened by disease. We who were poor might become rich through Christ's poverty. And again, this is one, the entire good news wrapped up in one sentence. So what does Paul mean when he says that we become rich? Well, if you look at Corinthians uh, up to this point, we see that we're rich in a lot of ways. We see we receive the riches of forgiveness. 
that God was not counting men's sins against them, but provide reconciliation with God. That we have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in us as a down payment. That we can have confidence that after death, God will raise us from the dead and that we will spend eternity with Him. And maybe most of all, maybe most gloriously of all, that we who are in Christ are being transformed into the image of God. Jesus Christ himself. That's what it means to be rich. So Paul in one sentence says, look at what Jesus has done for you. He was God himself. He became man, suffered, died naked, alone. Why? So that you, wretched, rebellious people, might experience forgiveness, might experience reconciliation, might experience the presence of God in your lives, might have confidence that we will live forever and ever in his presence, and most of all, that God will transform us to be what we are always designed to be, which is like him. Why does Paul bring this up? He brings it up to tell the Corinthians in the middle of this sort of strange fundraising note that everything we have in our lives, spiritually, materially, emotionally, relationally, physically, has one foundation. God gave it. That's where it comes from. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's getting on to the same group of people about their pride. And he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And that's what he's saying right here, right now. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. And how did you receive it? From Jesus, God himself, who gave everything for you. And notice, you know, like when we're talking about riches and poverty, you know, everybody in America, you think about riches, you think about Bill Gates, right? That's who I think about every time. I don't know why. There are other rich people. I never think of Warren. I always think of Bill. You know what I mean? Um, But Paul is not saying that Bill Gates wrote you a million-dollar check. Because you know what happens if Bill Gates writes you a million-dollar check to his life? Nothing. Because he has billions. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, Bill Gates gave every last dime and lived on the street for you. That's what he's saying. It cost God everything for you. It's the first thing that we see in this passage. Mind-blowing. The most important thing in this passage or any other is that you and I are offered the grace of forgiveness, of new life, of transformation, of resurrection... Because Christ has given everything for us. Through his poverty, we experience the grace of salvation to be made rich. The second thing we see, though, that's the good news, here's the harder news, is that the inevitable result of receiving that grace is that we experience the grace of generosity to God's people. If you're looking at the text, go ahead and flip to eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Paul shows... The Corinthians, the inevitability of God's grace by telling them about somebody else, the Macedonians. And if we look at verse 1, it says, Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, I know a lot of you are like me. You've been raised in the church your whole life. We just talked a lot about grace. When you hear grace, what do you think? You think salvation, all those spiritually things, the Holy Spirit, forgiveness, right? all the stuff we just talked about. Paul says, I want you to know about the grace... That God gave the Macedonian churches. And you and I are all thinking, here comes the spiritual stuff. But what is the grace that God gave the Macedonian churches? Well, here it is in verse 2. Out of the most severe trial, 
their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. What Paul is saying is, these guys over here in Macedonia, let me tell you something about them, they are broke. And we know from history they are probably being persecuted. See, guys, in a pretty bad way, and you know it. Let me tell you what happened. They received God's grace. But this time, the grace wasn't forgiveness and salvation. It was them begging Paul, please allow us to participate in what you're doing for the poor in Jerusalem. We want to give. We want to share what we've got. I know it's not much. We're hurting over here. But what we've got, we want to give. And I think a lot of times uh, this passage and passages like it are hard for us to get because we're used to thinking of grace as being what happens when, when God does something really good for us. And then we do really good things for other people because we have to and that's what he owes us and it's kind of a drag. And you get that fundraising letter and I get that fundraising letter and I'm like, okay, somebody's going to Mexico for a week. I've got $15 for that. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how we think about it, right? It's a total drag. That's not how Paul is describing generosity. He's describing what the Corinthian, I mean, sorry, what the Macedonians do for the poor using the exact same language as what God did for the Macedonians. Let me say that again. He's using the same language, grace, for what the Macedonians are doing for others that he used to explain what God had done for the Macedonians. Because what the Bible says is that God not only forgives us, not only promises us eternal life when we die, but graciously transforms us. So that the good that we do in this life is not something that we kind of tack on to the end It's not us trying to earn it. We're not trying to climb the ladder. It is God's grace to us and in us and for us. See, the Macedonians understood that God had saved them. And so they begged for the opportunity of being able to pass on what God had done to them to others. And that too was grace. All grace. Now, for Paul, the good news is that we receive the grace of salvation and we receive the grace of new life. And that new life includes generosity. But Paul can actually go further, and here's where it gets scary. Because Paul can go on to say, not only is generosity what we do with our stuff, the inevitable result of receiving God's grace, it's actually a litmus test for whether we have received God's grace. So if you look with me in verse 8, Paul says, I'm not commanding you, brothers, which is kind of funny because you sort of feel like he's commanding you, don't you? Like, Paul, you've got the Holy Spirit. This is the Bible. You're telling us to do stuff. That feels an awfully lot like command, okay? Quit playing, right? But he says, I'm not commanding you. Why? He says, I'm testing you, and I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, I don't have to give you a rule about giving. 
Because if you get what Jesus did, you will give. If you've received the grace of all the riches of God being given to you only by God's sacrifice, then you will sacrifice what you've got for other people. It's inevitable. It's, it's, it's like passing a test. Not a test, uh, as Rebecca reminded me earlier this week, like we're earning it and trying to get a certain percentage. But it's like a litmus test. If this chemical is in that water and I stick this little thing in there, it turns green, right? What Paul's saying is I can look at your bank accounts and your checkbooks and what you do with those letters and dunk them in and see if God's grace is there. Because if you've received it, it will overflow out of you to others. Now, lest you think that this is just Paul in one place and maybe he's really hurting and he's like me when I was raising money for Kenyon. It's getting close to him. Like, no, seriously, it's really bad. Please give us money. You know, like, lest you think this is just, you know, the end of the campaign season and the building is halfway built and Paul's freaking... No, this is... Paul is building up something that's all throughout the entire Bible. Remember Amos? Hey, all of you good Old Testament believers who are tithing and making sacrifices and coming to church, I hate it because you do not do justice for the poor. Remember Jesus saying, one day you will face judgment and you will die and I will ask you and I will say to you, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers. Do you remember that? Jesus saying, the difference between those who get in and don't get in is what they did to the least. Do you remember John, in John, First uh, John, saying, this is how we know that the love of God is in us. If we have material possessions and we help someone in need, it's there. And if we have material possessions and we don't, it's not. Now, it's easy for me and for you to take this as some kind of works righteousness, where God's saying, if you want to get into heaven, you got to do something. That is not what Paul or any of these guys is saying. What he's saying is, if you look at your life and your finances are not changing, you haven't been saved. You don't change your finances to get saved. Changing your life, including your finances, is the inevitable result of getting saved. And that should scare us to death, right? That sounds a little bit like bad news, if you're like me. But remember, Paul's talking about that generous life that he calls to us, calls us to as grace. Why? Why is it grace to pass on the grace that God has given us to others? Well, Paul describes this, and this is the third thing I want us to see, which is that when we receive God's grace of salvation, when that turns into the grace of generosity in our lives, what's it say? God's gifts... Oh, no, wait, I'm on the wrong slide. Okay, what happens is the Christ-centered grace of giving creates a community of generosity. So when we receive the grace of salvation and it overflows in generosity in our lives... The result, the inevitable result, is a community of generosity. And we see this. If you look, look with me in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 15, Paul says, As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. A lot of times preachers everywhere uh, will use movies, right, as illustrations. And sometimes they have to tell you the whole thing, and sometimes they tell you the spoiler, and you don't pay any attention to anything else they said, because you're so mad that they ruined that movie that only came out on Friday, and it's just Sunday, and would you chill out, Pastor so-and-so? Okay, so you've all experienced that. But sometimes a movie is so popular that one line 
alludes to the whole movie, right? So if I said, I'll be back, you know I'm talking about? Or maybe you don't. Terminator, come on. How about, Luke, I am your father. Star Wars. By the way, Rebecca and I watched this recently. You need to go back and watch them. If you didn't get that one, you just go back. They're great. Uh, but the point is, one line can allude to an entire movie, right? And what Paul does here is he gives these Corinthians one line from a story they know as well as you and I know, Star Wars and Terminator. The one who had much, not have too much. The one who have less, not have too, li- not have too little. And if we don't remember that story, we've got to refresh ourselves on what happened. Because this, this line comes from the story of God giving manna in the wilderness after the exodus. So when Paul gives this throwaway line at the end, everybody in the church will be remembering that story about how, oh, that's right. Our spiritual ancestors were slaves to an evil empire that abused them and used their labor to create wealth for somebody else. And God rescued us. And he raised up a deliverer. And that deliverer, Moses, brought us out of the Red Sea and led us into the wilderness. And then we got there and we were like, oh man, the desert doesn't have a lot of food, does it? What are we going to do? And so we complained. And we said, God, did you take us out of this empire to die? And what did God do? Well, we, we were told in Exodus that every day, for years, the Israelites would get up and they'd find bread, manna, all around. That had fallen from heaven, literally, during the night. And there were some funny things about this manna. Paul tells us that it was there every day. That they could collect as much as they wanted during the day, but that at the end of the day, miraculously, when everybody looked at their baskets, the guys who had collected more did not have too much for themselves for that day. And the guy who, you know, slept in and he got out late and, you know, maybe he had to, you know, discipline his kids or whatever, or his devotion went out a little long and he didn't get too much manna, he didn't have too little. Pretty cool, pretty miraculous. And the other thing that was crazy about this manna is that if you're like, well, you know, I have some today, but what about tomorrow? I'm going to try to hold on to some. Remember what happened? The manna that gets hoarded rots. You wake up in the morning and it's got maggots in it. Now, I have seen some moldy bread. I've never seen brand new bread moldy the next day, right? So what Paul's saying is, and what we're told in Exodus, is that this manna, which represented God's gifts to us, provided enough for everybody to have enough. And it could not be hoarded. So that the one who had too much did not have too much, and the one who had less, collected less, did not have too little. And here's, here's why Paul is reminding them of that story. It's because the Exodus story of manna was based on the miracle of God giving bread every morning. But the story that Paul's telling is based on the miracle of God giving his very self to us. And when that happens, the miracle is not that we accidentally wake up and we have enough for ourselves and nobody else has too little for themselves. The miracle is that we enter into a gracious community in in which what is given to us is given to us to be shared so that as we respond to the grace of God, the situation is the same as with manna. That everybody in the community, no matter what, nobody has too much and nobody has too little. 
look at what it says. You know, Paul is, you know, you can see Paul, the fundraiser. It's like he told them about these poor people who gave so much, you know, beyond their means. And he's thinking, well, that sounds a little bit strong. I don't want to scare them. So let me tell them. He says right there in verse uh, 11 or 12, sorry, 13. Um, I'm not saying that I want you to be hard-pressed and suffer while these guys in Jerusalem have it easy. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I want the extra that you've been given to fill up their lack. So at this present time, what God has given to you will be used by God to provide for them. So that in a future situation, when you're in need, their excess, God will give them excess. So that they can help you out in your need. What Paul is describing is a miraculous community of grace. Where what God's given is given to be shared. Think about it. Think about it. You know, most of us, uh, when we think about security, we think about our bank accounts and our investments and our job. For me, it's education. Our hard work, our intelligence. That's what we trust in. Not in the community of grace. And then others of us think that if we just pray hard enough, God will eventually drop the bends in our front lawn. Right? God's going to provide me with enough. Unmediated. Just me and God. Give me that stuff. God, God says both of those things are false. In the community of grace, God does not give each individual person what they need. He gives the community enough for everyone's needs. So that the only way we have security is by our life together experiencing God's grace. It's not in my bank account. It's not in God giving me stuff directly. It's about God giving us stuff and the grace of God so transforming our lives that my stuff becomes your stuff when you need it and your stuff becomes my stuff when I need it. That's a community whose security is based only on God's grace. As God's grace plays out in our sharing with one another. And also, for those of us, particularly in this church, as we think about what it means to try to be a church across race and class, that grace is in the service of a community that reconciles race and class. Because remember, the Corinthians were in a different class than the Macedonians. Paul's saying, join with your brothers across class in that work. And both the Corinthians and the Macedonians were, were Gentile people. But they're raising money for Jews. Paul's saying, generosity will bring people from different races together. And in fact, none of these three groups, the Jerusalem people, the, the Corinthian people, the Macedonian people, were actually like nearby neighbors, right? These are people far away. Generosity in God's community reconciles across, us across place. So what we see as we look at what Paul's doing here is he's saying that when we get God's grace of salvation inevitably turns into generosity, and when we give the grace and receive the grace of generosity, God uses that to create a community of sharing where what I have fills up what you need. And what you need fills up what I need in this community that is above and beyond and gathers together people from every race and class in place into the grace of God. So what does this mean for us as we think about it? 
We've said that we've seen that God's grace comes to us through Christ becoming poor for our sakes in salvation. We've seen that that salvation inevitably lives to us experiencing the grace of generosity and that that generosity creates a new kind of community which provides security, reconciliation, provides for our needs. What are the applications? Well, first of all, and foremost of all, and if you don't hear anything else, hear this. None of this matters without that one sentence story right in the middle. That Jesus, who was God himself, gave up everything for you. We have to tell ourselves that story every day. That is our story if you are in Christ. Not that you earned it. Not that you did a good, enough good deeds for God to like you. Not that you and God are just okay. But that when you were dead in your sins and could do nothing, God gave up everything for you. And I, one thing that preparing for this sermon has helped me to do, I can't think of a one-sentence better summary for the good news of what Jesus has done. So maybe one thing that we could do is just memorize this verse. Say it to yourself once a day. Remind yourself when you're tempted to think about all the good things you've done for yourself or about how much in need you are. That God, in Jesus, who was rich, made himself poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. But secondly, if we're going to follow what Paul wants us to do, then we have to do the, the bad stuff, which is to test our lives against the standards of God's grace. We have to test whether we've received that grace of salvation. And the way that we do that is by looking at how we use our stuff. And when we do that, and I do that, and you do that, we're going to find, I'm afraid, some pretty bad news. I did some statistics because statistics are good to use to shock us. So here's some shocking statistics. Can we get those up here? Well, let me read one before we get to that. Uh, do you know that in 2002, using a narrow definition of evangelical, only 9% of evangelicals tithed? Now, before we go any further, let me remind you, Paul's not calling us to tithe. Tithing is way too easy for Paul, right? But in America, the richest country that has ever existed, 9% of evangelicals, now think about all those other churches that you don't consider Christian. I'm not talking about them. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about evangelicals. Not only 9% give even 10%. In fact, the average in 2001 gave 4%. 4% of their income in the richest nation that's ever walked the face of the earth. You know what the real bad news is, though? It turns out that the more we get, the less we give. So in 2001, we had more money, but we gave less. In fact, Americans give less today than they did during the Great Depression in terms of the percentage of their income. As it turns out, if we don't recognize that everything we have is a gift from God, we think we've earned it. So the more we get, the more we get to decide what to do with it. And when we judge ourselves by God's standards, it turns out there's some really bad news. It hasn't affected our wallets very much. This whole thing of when we get more, we give even less. This right here is, a, I've seen this before, I looked it up again this week and was just floored. This is a breakdown of the zip codes in our city. On the left-hand side, you see discretionary income, money after tax. And at the bottom, you see percent of money after tax that's given. And what you can see very clearly is that the zip codes that make the very most money give almost the very least away. Remember the Corinthians? They had a little bit more, but they were getting stalled out on giving. While the Macedonians, who were poor, 
were giving out of their deep poverty. Check out what's way over here. 38126, South Memphis. Some of you are from that zip code. Lowest amount of income in that community per person of any zip code in our city. They give the highest amount percentage-wise of that income away. If we hold ourselves up to God's standard, what we see is that we are having trouble receiving the grace of salvation that turns into the grace of generosity. It's bad news. It's bad news for me. It's bad news for you. But here's the good news. We can begin to enter into the grace of giving by doing what the Macedonians do. They begged for the chance to participate in the grace of generosity. You know, one simple way to think about this that's helped Rebecca and I over the years is Jesus' simple words, store up treasures for yourselves in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When I was growing up, I thought that that verse said, where your heart is, there your treasures will be also. Right? Meaning, what you care about, you'll spend money on. Which is true, but that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's actually saying is the reverse. Where you put your money will drag your heart after it. Right? That's what he says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as Rebecca and I were talking about this, she said it's pretty simple. Think about what the biggest line item on your budget is. How much time do you think, do you spend thinking about the biggest line item on your budget? How much time do we spend thinking and praying about the stuff that costs us money? And what, what Jesus told us was, spend money on my kingdom and your heart will move towards it. And so the miraculous thing that God has given us is the opportunity to beg for the grace of generosity and to begin to enter into it. And so when we think about this, we can begin asking ourselves, what would it take for us to actually live like the people of God who've received the riches of God only by himself making himself poor? What would it, be, what would it mean to be faithful to that story? For one thing that I've realized this week, is that it'll mean is I've got to actually understand where my money is going. I have to look at it. I spend time focusing. Where, what am I doing with the stuff that I've got, no matter how much or little it is? And then we need to ask, start asking ourselves, is this the way I should be spending my money if I really believe that God gave everything for me? And we need to begin to start living like the Macedonians who saw that the standard and guide for our economic lives was the cross. Standard and guide of our economic lives was the cross. So ask yourself this morning, what would it look like for us to not give off the top, not give the leftovers, not give the scraps, but to say, my God gave everything for me. And I'm going to take up my cross in the way I spend and use my stuff. I think it would mean a lot of us being willing to take careers that pay less money than we could otherwise get. I think it would mean all of us, no matter how much you make, trying to scheme and find ways to live on less so that we can give away more, so that we can be like Christ. I think it would mean recognizing that there's a whole lot in the Bible about taking up your cross and suffering with the Lord. And we live in America, and so we don't get persecuted. And you live in the South, so nobody's going to screen you for a job because you love Jesus. But you know where the cross gets in your business? It gets in your business with your stuff. You know where tomorrow I can take up my cross with what I do with my money? 
And I just want to point out, sort of as we close, that this is good news for all of us because um, the, the thing is we so often think about generosity as a privilege of rich people. You know, in America, the problem is the rich people. Everybody's middle class in America, right? So uh, the poor folks blame middle class folks who blame rich folks who blame super rich folks who blame super, super rich folks who blame Bill Gates, right? That's how it works in America, right? And if somebody, that's one of my problems with so much of the uh, sort of 1% stuff. We want somebody else who's got enough to give it up. But the problem is there's never enough. We never get enough. We are all living the lives of the super rich, saying, if I get a little bit more, then I'll begin to live. Christ had everything. He didn't wait till he had a little bit more. He gave it all. The Macedonians didn't wait. They didn't say, well, maybe we need to get a better job. Maybe we need to, like, you know, do something else and raise some more money. They said, we've got nothing. We're in the depths of poverty. But it overflows into generosity because we love a God who gave everything for us. If you're in this congregation and you don't have a lot of money and you're thinking, man, it's a shame that I don't have enough to give away. I feel disgraced because I don't have anything to put in the plate. Let me tell you something. What Paul says, if your heart is there, the gift is acceptable according to what you've got. You get to participate in this. Every single person. There's not one person in this room who does not have enough to pass on the grace of God to his people. Not one person. And there is not one person in this room in the richest nation that's ever walked the face of the earth. Guys, we are pharaohs and kings among the men and women of history. There's not one of us who we don't need to open our hearts and say, what would it look like to take up my cross today with my stuff? It's bad news, guys. I mean, I spent, you know, some time with this the other week and I I called Rebecca on the phone and said, babe, I'm not sure we're Christians. I'm not sure we get it. Here's the good news. That's why Christ died. So that you and I may be caught up in the ocean of grace and mercy. So that you and I can be sucked in to a life based on the one who died for us. And gave it all and through his poverty made us rich. So we may share his riches with one another. Let's pray. God, you have called us to do so much more than we feel that we can do. So far beyond what we feel capable of. God, saturate us in your grace. Soak us in your giving generosity to us. So that we might become your people. And Lord, I pray that you would make this church, this community... A little group of people who really gets your grace to us. And as a result, spends ourselves in order to pass on your grace to others. And as we do that, God, would you form here a community of grace where none has too much and none have too little, but all look to you and people from every race and class and place can be united to you in joy and generous grace. Lord, that's what we want. We need your spirit to do it. Do it in our lives. Begin it this morning. Remind us of your love, Lord, and change us. We praise things in your name. Amen.